Well, good morning, everybody, and um, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Sahar Khan, and I'm a visiting research fellow here in the Defense and Foreign Policy Department. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Steve Call to you this morning, who is the author of this hefty book, Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, Mr. Call is also the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University, and he was the president of New America Foundation from 2007 to 2013. Um, he's also a staff writer for The New Yorker, and before that, he was at the Washington Post for 20 years, where he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1990 for explanatory journalism. He is the author of seven books, including Pulitzer Prize winner Ghost Wars, which is another excellent read, along with On Grand Trunk Road, The Bin Ladens, and Private Empire. It is also my pleasure today to introduce to you Mr. Shuja Nawaz. Um, he is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center, a center that he helped create and directed from 2009-2014. Um, he began his illustrious career as a journalist and also attended the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia, where he won the Henry Taylor International Correspondent Award. Uh, along with working for Pakistan Television, he has worked for the New York Times, the World Health Organization, and directed three separate um, divisions at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, he is the author of Crossed Swords, Pakistan, Its Army and the Wars Within, which is one of my favorite books. And um, it is a must read, of course, and he's currently working on his second book. So without further ado, Mr. Call. Great. Well, thank you, Sahar. Good to see everyone here this cold, cold, wet day. Um, I think the idea is that I'll uh, talk for about 20 minutes or so, and then uh, Shuja will um, have some comments, and then we'll open up the discussion for your questions and, and uh, comments. So um, this is a, a kind of a sequel to the book Ghost Wars, which was the product of my own kind of accidental assignment to South Asia as a correspondent for the Washington Post worked there for a number of years, concentrating mostly in those days on Pakistan and Afghanistan. And then after September 11th, when I was back in Washington, um, tried to write a thorough, readable, reliable history of how the Afghan wars had incubated the 9-11 attacks. And that book ended on September 10th, uh, 2001. And though I've done a lot of other things since then, it came out in 2004, I've always thought about whether I should attempt a second volume, essentially, of Ghost Wars, and that's what Directorate S is. It starts where the last volume ended on September 10th. It comes forward to something like the present day, it tries to use the same strategies of investigative reporting and storytelling that I used in the first volume, although the history that it covers is, of course, quite different than the pre-9-11 history. And uh, the book is organized into four sections, which give you a sense of how the narrative, the whole story of the war, the triangle among the US, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, decision-making at the highest levels mostly, but also intelligence operations, and occasionally the experiences of soldiers on the ground, how it's organized and how it's framed. So the first section is um, called Blind into Battle, and it covers the, year, the period in the fall of 2001 when the Taliban were rapidly overthrown after the 9-11 attacks, and many al-Qaeda were 
killed in that phase of the war, but also many others escaped from Tora Bora into Pakistan, where they ultimately destabilized the country. The second section is called Losing the Peace. It covers the years 2002 to 2006, and it tries to describe the many reasons why the, the quiet after the Taliban's fall was followed by a revival of the Taliban's insurgency, which was really in full flower by the end of 2006. And then the third section is called The Best Intentions, which covers the period from 2007 through 2010. And it describes first the Bush administration and then the incoming Obama administration grappling with a deteriorating war and trying to figure out how to fix it and how to finally, let's keep our promises in Afghanistan. And so there's an enormous ambition that follows uh, both the, in the second term of the Bush administration and the first term of the Obama administration. And then the last section of the book is called The End of Illusion, and it covers the period from about 2011 until today, and it describes the collapse of the relationship between the U.S. government and the Pakistani government and the, um, and the essential um, coming to terms in the U.S. system with the kind of unwinnable character of the war against the Taliban, or so it appears. And... Uh, uh, the, I would say, just in my what I want to what I try to give you a flavor of in in my brief introduction is sort of what are the recurring themes in this history? Because in a lot of ways, I was a beat reporter on this war, uh, both uh, for the New Yorker and then as I was doing the research, I would come out to the region regularly and interview uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan as well as in Washington. And so I thought I knew quite a lot of the rough outline of what this war was about and where the turning points occurred. And when I went back in the context of the book research and tried to excavate down a few more layers and really chronicle carefully the decision-making points, one of the things that strikes you is the repetition of error and the repetition of misjudgment. Uh, different people, all really smart and qualified, sitting around and grappling with what are admittedly very hard and intractable problems, but often reaching the same... Uh, repetitious conclusions. And uh, so the book really tries to answer the question, why were the United States and its allies so frustrated in the pursuit of their goals in Afghanistan? What were the key reasons why they could not uh, do something about, for example, the, the sanctuary that the Taliban enjoyed in Pakistan as it revived? Director S, of course, refers to the covert action arm or a covert action arm of the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency of Pakistan, longtime supporter of the Taliban, and was uh, both a scapegoat in the war for the Americans, but also a genuine obstacle to, um, to the success of NATO efforts in the war. But I would say that there, there are four themes in the book that recur in these scenes where I try to reconstruct decision-making one of the things that I encountered was that between the Bush administration and the Obama administration, there were at least a dozen classified reviews of strategy in the Afghan war that almost all began with the same set of questions. How can we fix this war? The, the Trump administration had one when it came in, too. You know, where did drugs figure in the war? How do we change Pakistan's conduct? What are the key ways that we can reduce uh, the violence or change the stalemated map of our conflict with the Taliban? What are our war aims? And the, these reviews all more or less happened in the same classified conference room in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building or in the Situation Room. They repeated the same pattern. It was almost like a, a ritual uh, that passed with the seasons where the, there would be a week of briefings from intelligence specialists to try to lay out the shape of the war, present classified maps of who controlled what part of the country. 
And then the decision makers would wrestle with fundamental questions. And so one of the themes, one of the four themes I want to mention that recurred is what are our war aims? What are we really fighting for? And especially when you get to the point where we're sending tens of thousands of young American men and women to fight and to risk uh, lives and limbs in the, in the Afghan conflict, becomes a real grave responsibility to answer that question clearly. But <coughs> review after review really struggled with the question of how war aims that reflected vital interests of the United States were aligned with the actual reality of the way the war was being fought. Um, for example, one of the questions that just continued to flummox these reviewers was, are the Taliban our enemy? If they are our enemy, do they constitute a vital interest that really justifies sending young American men and women to war? During a review that the Obama administration held in 2009, after a lot of argument and wrestling with these maps and in all of the portraits of the war, the review essentially identified two vital interests in, Afghanistan, in the Afghan war that would justify this commitment. One was al-Qaeda, which was still persistent along the Afghan-Pakistan border and carrying out international attacks. The other was the security of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. If they fell into the wrong hands, it could be catastrophic. But take note, this is 2009. Neither al-Qaeda nor Pakistan's nuclear weapons are in Afghanistan, where we're sending tens of thousands of troops. The Taliban are in Afghanistan. The way the language would typically be formulated is that it was a vital interest of the United States to challenge or defeat or destroy al-Qaeda and its affiliates. So is the Taliban an affiliate of al-Qaeda? Well, there would be a long argument about this uh, that would recur. There were no Afghans on the planes on 9-11. It's not even clear the Taliban leadership knew about the attacks. You could say the Taliban were complicit in them, legally or morally, because they had provided sanctuary to al-Qaeda, despite many warnings in the run-up to the attacks, that so they had enabled the attacks. But the Taliban were not engaged in international cross-border attacks outside of the Afghan theater, and they, their position was, we're fighting you because you're in our country. So if they're an affiliate of al-Qaeda, what, what achievable end are US forces uh, seeking to, to um, obtain? And there, there was a scene, there's a scene in the book where there's an argument about whether there were some at the White House, and I think the President, President Obama was one of them, who really did not want to fight a war against the Taliban. Um, he didn't think it was winnable on any timeline or at any ex, uh, acceptable cost. Even Bob Gates, his defense secretary, a holdover from the Bush administration, said this is not winnable on any timeline we're willing to sign up for. Um, and so they would argue about whether they had ever actually promised to defeat the Taliban. And the Pentagon, which really did want to fight that war, um, came back the next day with a big PowerPoint deck and put up all the different slides, slides of all the different statements American political leaders had said promising that to defeat the Taliban. And so they said, well, you may not want to own these promises, but you've made them. They ended up uh, sending these tens of thousands of troops off to fight with the goal of degrading the Taliban or reversing its momentum. And as an editor, that's the kind of language, you know, you draw lines through because it's way too vague and imprecise. If you wanted to put the most sympathetic spin on these decisions, you would say it was a war to buy time to build up Afghan security forces so that they could take the lead after years of neglect in building up those security forces so that they could defend their own security. 
that the job had been left undone uh, by 2009, and so the idea was to hurry and get it done over the next few years. But even so, when you ask uh, young American men and women to walk through IED-infested green zones west of Kandahar, you know, when you're, it wasn't, I don't think, clear to many of them that they were there to reverse momentum or to buy, buy an interval of time. They thought they were fighting uh, for vital interests of the United States. A second theme that recurs in the book is the failure of our relationship with Hamid Karzai and our investments in democratic Afghan politics more broadly. Because we failed to change Pakistan's calculus about its relationship with the Taliban or its interests in Afghanistan as represented by the Taliban, we confused a lot of our allies, and one of them was Hamid Karzai. It became fashionable to see Karzai as unbalanced, off his meds, you know, uh, kind of a completely unreliable partner, and certainly the book describes speech and conduct that he engaged in in private that was, um, um, un, you know, disturbing. But again, this is an area where I thought I knew him. I had interviewed him a couple of times, covered him a lot, seen him in a lot of press conferences, spent some time around him over a long period of time. But when I went back and tried to unpack as many of the conversations he had with visiting American officials, I was struck by how consistent he was about one thing, which is that every time an American came to visit him, he said, what are you doing about ISI? What are you doing about Director Des? What are you doing about Pakistan? Of course, this was a way to evade responsibility for his own limitations and failures of government or for corruption in his regime, but it was also the way he and many other in his cabinet um, saw the failure of U.S. policy. How can you allow uh, this sanctuary to persist? Why cannot you, the most powerful you know, country in the world, do something about it? And it really is striking that this message was very, very consistent. It wasn't just Karzai. Candidate Obama landed in Afghanistan in the summer of 08, and the cabinet, which was quite fractious uh, then as ever, um, had a little pre-meeting, and they said, you know, this guy could become president. We really ought to put on our best show when, when we have our cabinet meeting with him, and let's, let's be consistent in our messaging. So they agreed that everyone around the table would say, you need to put more pressure on Pakistan to do something about the Taliban. And they did that. And Obama asked, is that possible uh, through the civilians? And they said, well, you know, you're the most powerful country in the world. You should think about how to, how to achieve that. The point with Karzai is that when nothing changed, and of course Pakistan was in a state of deep instability during this very period. It, was, it had descended into the worst period of domestic terrorism the country's ever known. Tens of thousands of people died, security forces, civilians, militants. The country was in chaos. At one point in 2009, the Taliban marched out of SWAT and there was an anxiety attack for a couple of months that they might make their way into Islamabad. So the U.S. wasn't in a position to put the kind of pressure on Pakistan in this period that the Afghans wanted, but the fact that they failed to do something about the sanctuary that the Taliban enjoyed, even when the Taliban were crossing into Afghanistan and attacking and killing American troops, really confused the Afghans. And Karzai, I think, sunk into conspiracy theory, uh, conspiracy theories as the years passed. He, he basically, his logic chain was, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world. If it wants to change Pakistan's behavior, it can. It hasn't done so. There must be another explanation. That explanation must be that they want Pakistan to destabilize Afghanistan so that they can justify 
keeping military bases in the country for the long run. Now, Americans got very frustrated with this conspiracy theory. They were trying to negotiate with Karzai. At one point, the book describes James Dobbins, a special envoy, going in to meet with him in 2013 after this theory has really kind of polluted their discussions with Karzai. And he, Dobbins says to him, you know, Mr. President, by now you've got all the Edward Snowden materials. You've got all the WikiLeaks materials. Can you see in all of these revelations any trace of this design, this conspiracy theory that you have about us uh, trying to destabilize Afghanistan? And Karzai pauses and kind of half smiles and says, maybe you don't know the plan. <laughs> you know, there is a deep state in America. Um, so the third theme that becomes very important uh, as the war becomes more and more ambitious after 2006, involves the illusions of American counterinsurgency doctrine in Afghanistan and the idea that there was a kind of engineering diagram that had been discovered in the Baghdad surge that could be applied to Afghanistan. And uh, there was a kind of bubble in Washington, those of you who are around for it will remember, uh, a little bit like Bitcoin, of thinking that expeditionary counterinsurgency could turn a war like Afghanistan's around in a, in a limited period of time. I mean, in fact, the troop ratios, the, the status of the Afghan security forces, the, the math of the war never even conformed to abstract counterinsurgency doctrine. And the idea that you could um, solve that math problem by limiting the counterinsurgency war to 80 security districts you know, became a kind of strange, overdetermined diagram. And I think, you know, by a year into the surge that was based on this counterinsurgency doctrine, the, the whole point was to try to connect uh, the Afghan population to a legitimate Afghan government. And uh, that always was founded on an illusion that this, this clear, hold, build, transfer mantra could result in the transfer of areas cleared of Taliban control to an Afghan government that could, that could do much with them. Uh, especially in the, in the South and East, and that war is still obviously going on. And then finally, the fourth kind of loop in this history is, involves the failure of American political and diplomatic strategy. Um, it recurs in different ways. Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in counterfactual history, the kind of what if things would have been better. I don't think the world is organized that way. But if you ask the question, you know, was there ever a time when we might have done better? Um, obviously, as the, as the book's organization describes, that, that period would have been immediately after the fall of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, 2002-2004. A lot of Afghans came home. Uh, they wanted to reclaim a country that they had lost, not through their own factionalism or civil war, but from wars triggered by outside invasions. There was a great sense of hopefulness. The whole international community was reunited around the legitimacy of the government that came out of the bond process. And what happened? The United States turned away to fight in Iraq. Um, the United States had no political strategy outside of bond to try to, to identify and incorporate as many uh, of the defeated into peaceful politics as possible. What's the lesson of history? After you win a war as swiftly and decisively as the US-led coalition did in the fall of 2001, you, have to ha you can hold leaders of the enemy force accountable. You can try war criminals if you wish. But 
you can't hold every foot soldier, every lieutenant, every sergeant who fought in the enemy army accountable for their service, for their force. That was certainly what we applied, the wisdom we applied in Germany and Japan after the Second World War. But we did the opposite in Afghanistan. We treated every remnant Taliban, farmer's son, volunteer militia uh, member as a candidate for Guantanamo. And we had no strategy for going beyond uh, the volunteers for the bond process to try to stabilize constitutional Afghan politics through that kind of inclusion. We did the same thing in Iraq, of course, when we dissolved the Ba'ath Party and created the Sunni insurgency. So there were many other failures, I think, of political eyesight in that 2002 to 2006 period. Later, the pattern that recurs is one laced with a basic contradiction. Every commander who comes over to lead the war in Afghanistan after it gets to be a big war in 2007, 2008, will say in public, you know, this is not a war that is going to end on the battlefield with a total military victory. It's not that kind of war. Um, ultimately, we're going to have to fight this war to the negotiating table and find some kind of settlement, but it's too early to do that now. Um, and so even, I think, David Petraeus, who led the war after 2010, said, you know, you can't capture and kill your way out of an industrial strength insurgency, and that's what we have here. And yet, despite the rhetorical uh, positioning that this was a war that required a political strategy, not just a military strategy, um, it was the military strategy that was resourced um, you know, at 90% or 95% of budget and effort uh, again and again. And we now have a, an administration that has come in and had the same set of strategy reviews. They put a little more pressure on Pakistan. We can talk about how much uh, change that represents. But a lot of the, the strategy represents continuity, in my judgment. And here in this prioritizing of military action, the notion is that by loosening the rules of engagement, by signaling long-term commitment, by dropping bigger bombs, that we are going to change the course of the war, even though at the peak, 150,000 international combat troops didn't change the course of the war. Now we have 15,000 plus Afghan security forces. And so I do fear that uh, when the next uh, president is inaugurated or President Trump is re-inaugurated in 2021, we're still gonna be at this war. So thanks for listening. Listen to Shu Jen, take your questions soon. Thank you very much, uh, Sahar and Steve. And uh, Steve, especially because I think it was his book, Ghost Wars, that in many ways inspired me to, to write my first book on the Pakistan army, which ended up being a book about not just the army, but the country and the region. And um, I didn't know that he was working on Directorate S when I began my second book. <laughs> but uh, that is looking at the period 2010 till today uh, at Pakistan and the region uh, and the U.S. relationship. Uh, and so there's a regional angle to it. Uh, but um, before I run out of time, and I have a lot to say because the book has a lot to offer, let me just uh, say a few words about the book itself because for those of you that have not read it, it's going to be a treat. 
Um, like Ghost Wars, uh, Steve has obviously relied on his fantastic journalistic skills uh, and his personal knowledge of the whole region. I mean, after all, this is the man who wrote a book on the Grand Trunk Road, who, who knows the region, who knows everyone uh, in, in the region that really matters, and they're willing to talk to him. And so what you're getting is a really measured account of uh, what a good journalist does, which is to chronicle events and the background to the events, and, and leave it to the military strategicians to come up with the really pithy analyses of what the war is about or should have been about. And unfortunately, on Afghanistan, there's been only one other book that I can think of, and I will come to it, uh, which actually helps us understand what the war is about and what lessons can be learned from it. And that's not by an American. It's by a young British captain. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to be learned from this book. It is magisterial. Uh, the scope is a broad arc of history. Uh, and, and it's rooted in the human side. So you will meet the people that matter at key junctures in this uh, chronicle uh, and, and why they were right or why they were wrong. Um, there's also um, a very useful explanation of the initial days of the invasion, uh, except for one part where I would just add that um, there, there was actually a Marine Expeditionary Force, Task Force 58, which was led by a young brigadier general named James Mattis uh, that actually um, landed on the beach of a place called Pasni near Gawadar in Pakistan in, in the middle of the night. And uh, his troops were then kept um, during the day uh, hiding under hangars and sheds and then transported at night to a place called Jacobabad from where they were transported by air to a place about 100 kilometers southwest of Kabul, uh, which eventually became, uh, it was a forward, supposed to be a forward operating base that they established. That became the site of Camp Rhino, for those of you that have followed the war. Uh, and that became the starting point for the actual physical invasion of Afghanistan. If you remember from the movies that you've been seeing on, on cinemas and on television, um, there were four CIA teams, uh, but you don't conquer a country with four CIA teams and a ragtag bunch of local uh, sympathizers. Uh, you needed the military, and so this Marine Expeditionary Force, um, it was the first naval expeditionary force commanded by a Marine, um, which actually took the center of gravity of the Taliban, took Kandahar, and, and, and ousted them from there, which began the route. One other element which is interesting, uh, which could have ended this conflict, was when bin Laden was found at Tora Bora, or it was suspected that he was at Tora Bora. And uh, the CIA made a plan, uh, along with its uh, sympathizers from the erstwhile Northern Alliance, um, to work with local uh, tribesmen to be able to encircle and entrap him there so that they could then get rid of bin Laden. Um, James Mattis, who had been a student of the frontier war, the Indian frontier war on the Western frontier in the United States, had studied the campaign to capture Geronimo. And he asked his people to do a computer map of the site and to see how he could occupy the high points and thereby make sure that nobody could cross the lines without being caught. 
and he had the troops and they were ready and he called his, his uh, superior in Tampa and he was told to stand down because the CIA had it under control and the locals would take care of bin Laden. Well, we know that the locals didn't take care of bin Laden. He escaped to Pakistan and stayed there for quite a long while. Uh, and the war continued. So uh, there are missing bits there. I think the final chapter is still to be written, as, as Steve says, and maybe as he points to 2021, um, we'll still be fighting this war. Uh, my own wish is that uh, I hope we won't. Now, uh, I'll just say a few things, um, and uh, pardon me for being very brief about them. I'd be happy to explain these as we get into a conversation uh, with you uh, afterwards. Uh, one, um, I'd like to dispel the myth of Afghanistan being a graveyard of empires. This is a, a phrase that you keep hearing, and you keep hearing it especially from people that have flown over Afghanistan or have been taken on guided tours by the military, uh, who don't know the country as well, who've never driven through it inland, uh, on, on the land, and talked to the people. Um, Afghanistan is special. Uh, it's special because of its location. It's special also because it is probably the oldest nation state in that part of the world. And it's older than Pakistan. It's older than Iran as a complete nation state. And it's certainly older than India as a nation state, uh, as we know it, modern India. Um, and Afghanistan is really, um, because of its geography, divided into ethnic and language groups and tribal groups. And I think till you understand the, uh, the mosaic that keeps Afghanistan together and separate at the same time, till you understand the paradox of that, uh, you really can't understand its role in the region. Uh, if anything, I would say Afghanistan has been a gateway for empires. Uh, and, and there are numerous examples, the Persian Empire, uh, Nadir Shah going through Afghanistan into India, uh, much earlier, Alexander the Great, um, the Mughals under Babur, a you know, small tribe from Fergana, evicted because of internecine feuds in the capital, um, makes Kabul a base and then launches into India and sets up an empire that the whole world still recalls today. So I think that's something to keep in mind. It plays a very critical gateway role and as a hub, and that's really the leverage that it has over all the countries on all sides of it as a neutral uh, place where they can all meet and then go in their dif different directions. The other point I want to make is, as Steve said, um, we didn't seem to learn much from history. We didn't learn from our first engagement with Afghanistan in the time of the Soviet Jihad. Uh, we didn't learn from Iraq, we didn't learn from Vietnam. Um, we have an excellent book uh, written by the current uh, national security advisor about the lessons of Vietnam. David Petraeus did a fantastic detailed PhD dissertation on the lessons from, from uh, Vietnam. Uh, but for some reason, and, and I was involved in one of those initial reviews in the Obama uh, uh, period, in, in, uh, when he moved into the White House, um, it struck me that almost everything that we were discussing then and now had already been discussed in great detail by the Soviets. 
And uh, there is a, a very famous watershed meeting of November 13th, 1986 of the Soviet Politburo that Gorbachev called, that included people like Shevardnadze and Dobrynin, uh, it included Akhromiev, the, the uh, defense chief. Um, and they talked about the need to get out of Afghanistan. And what they said was what Steve was saying. They, um, they said, we've been fighting this war for seven years. Uh, if things don't change, we'll be fighting it for 20 years. And who knows how, long, how much longer. So we've got to find a way and we have to find a way out. And we should do it in one year or two years. In the end, they decided to leave two years. But unlike Obama, they did not make the mistake of announcing it publicly. So nobody in the region knew that this was the Soviet plan and so could make amendments in their strategic calculus. Neither the Pakistanis, nor the Iranians, nor the, the Taliban, or, the, or their Afghan partners. But they also pledged that they would continue to support the Afghans financially. Until the Soviet Union collapsed, they continued doing that, and Najibullah stayed in power. It was only once the Soviet Union collapsed and the money stopped flowing that uh, the Afghan government collapsed. So um, what I will do is very quickly just read to you a few selected sentences from those minutes. They talk about Afghanistan and the army uh, particularly. And this is Gromyko saying, in Afghanistan, we did not receive domestic support there. In the Afghan army, the number of conscripts equals the number of deserters. More recently, we've been told that uh, the uh, attrition rate of the Afghan National Security Forces has been as high as 40%. So some things don't change. Then Akromiev, this is the military chief, says, military actions in Afghanistan will soon be seven years old. There is no single piece of land in this country which has not been occupied by a Soviet soldier. Nevertheless, the majority of the territory remains in the hands of the rebels. The government of Afghanistan has its, at its disposal a significant military force, 160,000 people in the army, 115,000 in Sarando, and 20,000 in state security organs. There is no single military problem that has arisen and that has not been solved, and yet still there is no result. The problem is that the military results are not followed up by political actions. And at the center, there is authority in the provinces, there is not. We control Kabul and the provincial centers, but on occupied territory, we cannot establish authority. 50,000 Soviet soldiers are placed close to the border, but they're not in a position to close all passages. And Gorbachev repeated this too, because he had an argument with Akromiev, said, you wanted 50,000 troops, you said you would close the border with Pakistan. I gave you 50,000 troops, now you want 50,000 more. Can you promise me that the border will be closed? And Akromiev couldn't promise, make that promise. The other thing to keep in mind, that apart from these arguments which we keep hearing again and again, during our own uh, involvement with Afghanistan is the fact that even the White House acknowledged, senior White House people acknowledged that only 10% of the attacks inside Afghanistan were actually emanating from the Haqqanis. 
But they were the ones that were most spectacular because they had access to Kabul and they were creating the biggest havoc. Uh, so this, this issue uh, got blown aside uh, in the desire to somehow change the Pakistani calculus. As I said about Afghanistan, it's geography that created the Afghan calculus. It's the geography that created the Pakistani calculus. Uh, their location, uh, their dependence on uh, Afghanistan um, for, for trade uh, with, uh, with uh, Central Asia, um, and the fact that they wanted to prevent India from occupying a foothold and sandwiching Pakistan in between was what informed their decisions. And until and unless we could remove Pakistan from that part of the world and move it to where Uruguay is, we were not going to be able to solve that problem. You know, if we did the Uruguay solution, then the nuclear issue would also disappear. So uh, the, these are some things uh, to keep in mind. Um, one other major point, and then I'll stop because I think uh, the book demands just so much weighty discussion. Um, we were fighting the war in a manner which was running counter to all military training and practice. And we had the most brilliant generals, the most brilliant commanders in CENTCOM, and yet, if you look back on it, and Steve makes a reference to it too in his book, till this time we've had something like 17 different commanders in Afghanistan. That's no way to fight a war, no way to, to run a train. Uh, if, you, if you have a commander changing on average every 13 months, uh, then he brings his own team, and then in the military, when you come in, the previous guy had got it all wrong, we have to do it differently. So it's counterinsurgency, but with a twist. Uh, you know, it's, it's clear, hold, build, transfer, but with a twist. Um, the other thing is, as Stan McChrystal um, told me in one of uh, my interviews, uh, we were fighting 10 different wars. Jim Jones told me the same. He, he had been the saqueur and was involved with looking at Afghanistan uh, much before he became the national security advisor to Obama. Uh, we were fighting 10 different wars because you had the coalition commanders in different parts of the country with their own constraints and their own remit. Uh, so it wasn't cohesive. And the Pakistanis, even if they'd wanted to, and there's some serious doubt if they really wanted the Americans to succeed, uh, they were confused by what the intentions were. I mean, the constant complaint one heard from the Pakistani military was, you tell us to move against the Haqqanis and these people in the, in the borderland. Uh, we'll do a hammer and anvil. You provide the anvil. Can you stop the people from escaping into Afghanistan? We'll push to the border. Never happened. Uh, we gave up the Korangal. Uh, we gave up the eastern border along North Waziristan. We moved the troops to the south. And when Kiani finally got close, as he says, and he may not be 100% correct uh, in the statement, but he says he was ready to move, and it's a question of if, uh, not if, but when. Um, when he asked for the American forces, he was told, we are training the Afghans. They will, they will provide the, the anvil. So there was this constant mistrust, and that was a mistrust born out of the fact that any American officer who had served in Afghanistan, who had lost people in the war to the Taliban, um, considered Pakistan to be the real enemy.
that Pakistan was providing succor and support and condoning and providing safe havens to these groups that were killing American soldiers and coalition soldiers. At the same time, Pakistan was promising to do a lot. And it did initially. It sent a lot of people to Guantanamo for a price. It helped with capturing a lot of Al-Qaeda people. Uh, and the US acknowledged it. So the interagency cooperation was there. But this brings me to the final point, which is that there was no center of gravity to decision making in Washington. It was the CIA fighting its war, the DOD fighting its war, the Department of State trying to put some order into this whole scheme, the White House trying to manage things on its own, and Congress occasionally getting in on the act. Um, in Pakistan, it was the civil and the military that weren't on talking terms most of the time. And within the military, there was a gap in thinking between the ISI, in the field in particular, and the Pakistani military headquarters. Until that gap uh, was removed, and it never was, and it still hasn't, um, there, there is this constant friction and conflict. And it's very difficult uh, to get them not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. And from their perspective, it's very difficult to, to get the Americans from not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. And so this has really been at the heart of, of this uh, unsolved conflict and a never-ending war. Thank you very much. I'll stop here and, and be happy to answer your questions. So as moderator, I'll um, take the advantage of asking you a couple of questions. Um, throughout the book, you mention defense contractors um, providing various services throughout the war. For example, um, Blackwater secured the Ariana Hotel in Kabul that served as CIA's headquarters in the beginning. 85% um, of CIA interrogators were um, conducted by contractors, not CIA um, officers. And Dan Corps, I think that's how you pronounce it, was hired to eradicate poppy seeds. So what are your thoughts on these private military security companies and how do you think that they're going to impact the war and sort of warfare in general? Um, my second question is related directly to the drug policy. You um, really detailed how the Bush administration made a distinction between having a drug policy and sort of having um, a war strategy. But by 2006, 2007, they realized they needed to do something about the poppy production. Um, and the role of the DEA over time um, has evolved. And so I wanted to ask you how DEA is perceived now and what kind of um, policy um, is being pursued. <laughs> well, thank you, Sahar. Um, yeah, I think on the drug question, I, I, was, I, I enjoyed working on that. It wasn't something I'd covered in real time during 2006, 2007, but I was struck when I went back to the history that the Bush administration, without quite announcing it in the second term, essentially tried to apply to the Afghan war um, some version of Plan Columbia. And in fact, they plucked out of Bogota two ambassadors, sent one to Islamabad, one to Kabul, who had participated in Plan Colombia. Of course, just as it was um, a, an inadequate to see the Iraq war as a model for the Afghan war, it was inadequate to see Colombia's counterinsurgency and counter drug campaign as applicable to Afghanistan. And what the policymakers ran into right away uh, was resistance from two quarters. First, the Pentagon, which didn't want to fight the farmers in southern Afghanistan who were 
growing the poppy because they were candidates, their, uh, their laborers were candidates to become part of the Taliban insurgency. And they advised again and again, you don't want to hit this particular beehive with a stick right now for the sake of, of counter-narcotics policy. Um, and the Europeans had the same view. Uh, the DEA had a view that was aligned with Plan Columbia, which is we can't win the war unless we deprive the Taliban of drug finance, so we've got to go all out and do aerial spraying. And then they ran into the second uh, front of resistance, which was the Afghan government, said you're, you're not going to come s through southern Afghanistan with mysterious helicopters spraying uh, people's fields, even if you tell them that this is safe, um, they're not going to believe it. They're going to see this as Soviet-style chemical warfare. And by the way, you've thought a lot of chemicals that you spray on your own country were safe, and then you later found out they weren't so safe. So how are we to be sure that you know what you're doing? And uh, so the whole thing really was a muddle, to be honest. There was a lot of time and effort spent trying to figure out how to align the counter-narcotics program with the counter-insurgency program. And you could talk yourself into a kind of kingpin solution. Well, we will leave the farmers alone so as not to create recruitment opportunities for the Taliban. We'll just go after the people who manufacture. They did some of that, but it wasn't decisive. Um, the, on the contractors, I mean, there's a kind of philosophical question of whether the monopoly of force that is brought to bear by a state in war ever ought to be privatized. And I'm sort of on the philosophy side of saying, you know, I don't, I think, States should be accountable for, the, for their monopoly on the use of force, and they shouldn't be subcontracting it out to private militias. Um, but as a practical matter, the subject of contracting in Afghanistan was um, hugely disruptive for the country and distorting. The American contracting, partially, but it was sort of a circular money loop where a lot of development money went you know, geographically into Afghanistan to NGOs and private companies and then flowed back to Northern Virginia or, you know, um, H Street, K Street. Um, but the real contracting disruption was the use of con Afghan contractors, which became, you know, a, a highly patron, uh, you know, highly corrupt patronage system uh, where the amount of money flowing through these contracts for security and other purposes, transportation, was, you know, orders of magnitude greater than any natural GDP of the Afghan economy, and that's still true today. The one thing, after we reduced our the international combat presence from 150,000 to roughly 15 today, um, a lot of these Afghan contractors were demobilized, and some of the insecurity in Kabul today, you know, any traveler who knows there, who goes there, who's managing their own kidnap risk, it's not the Taliban, it's these demobilized uh, militias that basically lost their contracts and don't have any other way to make money other than to kidnap people. So uh, it's, you know, it was a devil's bargain. Uh, whether we thought that these contracts were absolutely necessary in order to service the international combat troops, that was one reason. Um, there was also a kind of a cynical theory that, well, it spreads the money around and that will create stability, but it, uh, it didn't have that effect, in my opinion. Do you have any questions? Just a very small footnote. Sure. Um, some of the most successful U.S.-Pakistan cooperation took place in this field, in the anti-narcotics field, in the frontier region. Um, we had a team at the um, U.S. Embassy who had people that really knew the country well, Many of them knew the language. They helped build roads into Fatah before 
people thought of building roads into Fatah, and uh, they actually eliminated all the growing of uh, plants that was occurring on the Pakistan side of the border. Uh, this is one success that was never trumpeted by the U.S. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to open up uh, the Q&A. Um, please wait for the microphone. Um, and also, please introduce, um, introduce yourself and your affiliation. And of course, comments are welcome, but I would encourage you to keep your comments short and to make sure that your questions are indeed questions. Sure, over right here. Hi, uh, I'm Martin DeCaro. I'm here just for myself. I finished reading your book yesterday, actually. Congratulations. And I thought Ghost Wars was excellent as well. I have a question for you because I'm not quite sure where you fall uh, on the really key question about the American decision to go into Afghanistan after 9-11. Uh, in your conclusion, you lay out all the reasons and you elaborated them today as to why the project in Afghanistan and Pakistan failed. But I, I got the sense that you were indicating that if only other paths might have been taken, it might have worked out well. When, in my view, if you place this war in the pattern of American foreign policy over the last half century, it could only have resulted in disaster. There was no positive outcome, and invading Afghanistan was, in fact, a mistake. I wasn't quite sure where you fall on that spectrum. Can you clarify that for me? Yeah, I mean, I as a... As a historian, I don't feel like I need to have an opinion about every, about every, I'm trying to tell you what happened, why it happened, how it happened. But I think that the retaliation um, after September 11th to disrupt Al-Qaeda was justified and necessary because of the um, uncertainty about what was coming next. I mean, you could say it was just an expression of another failure because there was so much blindness about where this attack had come from and so much uncertainty about whether another attack on that scale was in motion that the only desperate response of self-defense was to go into Afghanistan and try to get al-Qaeda's leaders thinking about something else, like heading towards the eastern mountains instead of plotting a second wave or a third wave. Now, you know, if we'd had perfect fidelity on the context of where those 9-11 cells came from and how they'd been able to operate on such a long planning cycle, you know, 18 months of getting ready to make those attacks, they killed 3,000 Americans. So the idea that you would just sit there and let them plan without knowing what they were doing next, without acting, I, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't have done that if I were in charge. But to me, the question that you're driving for is not the fall of 2001, but what do you do after 2002? What are your ambitions then? And because you know, if you're willing to accept that as the whole world was, the international legal system was, that the, that the initial response to the attacks was justified as self-defense, then by the time the Islamic Emirate has collapsed and Al-Qaeda has been largely defeated, chased into Pakistan, missed opportunity at Tora Bora, but the war is over, basically, now what do you do? And that's when, you know, the Bush administration essentially did have an ideology at that time in the first term of not doing nation building. And they also had an idea that, you know, Iraq was a priority, but it was really, they had a conviction that they didn't want to get involved in any of those things. You know, some of it was the Soviet lesson, let's not build a big footprint, we'll just provoke resistance. Some of it was a philosophy of the U.S. military is for doing other things. And some of it was, well, this is what NATO's for, right? And so let's turn over some security to other countries and go about our... So that was, in fact, the, where things began. And 
you know, it was, in a political sense, it, it looked successful for a few years, this light footprint, you know, light resourcing of, of the reconstruction. The bond process produced successful, um, a, a successful constitutional uh, ratification, followed by successful presidential elections, followed by successful parliamentary elections. The whole international community was there supporting it. Uh, and as the book describes again and again, as Afghanistan starts to bubble and the Taliban start to come back, every time they have a meeting about it in Washington, the conclusion of the meeting is, okay, these are not great trend lines, but it's so much better than Iraq. <laughs> we should take comfort from that. <laughs> and that goes on for years, you know. So. Could I add something sure, of to course, that, yes. uh, Steve? Um, I think initially we had great leverage over Pakistan because we were giving them money. And I think Musharraf's calculus was it's going to be a short-term uh, short endeavor. I'll get the CSF, I'll, I'll take some money off the top for the army, and uh, you know we'll be able to buy additional weapons, et cetera, and then the Americans will leave and all, be, all will be fine. But the American aim kept changing, and the goals kept shifting. And so once the military became larger in Afghanistan, then the leverage that the U.S. had uh, shifted over to the Pakistani side because now they had, lines, they had yeah. the, 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 the Glock, the ground line of communication, and then they had the A-lock, which they never closed ever, but they used it as, as a bargaining tool. And so initially they pulled out all the stops to support the American invasion, giving airports, giving drone uh, f fields at Shamsi and other places, uh, helping capture the AQ, um, operatives in Pakistan, but then uh, after a time they became, became invested in CSF. And even when the Tierney report came out in 2010, which I think was a watershed year for this relationship, the Pakistanis just basically didn't react to that. Because they, they said, these guys are stuck here, this is you know water over a duck's back, let them complain about Pakistan, we'll continue to receive this money. And, and they continued to do that till a few years ago. So I think it was, it was a miscalculation uh, of how you could put pressure on Pakistan uh, that got us stuck in this war and, and we couldn't extricate the U.S. from it. Yeah, I mean, a very interesting turning point about which I wish I knew even more um, is the place in between those two times, 2005, 2006, where if you interpret the evidence, if you interpolate what happened, it seems clear in retrospect that Musharraf and the core commanders made a decision to allow a Taliban revival, to even foster a Taliban revival. And why did they do that? I think it was because partly they thought we were leaving, right? Because we turned NATO security over to the Dutch and the British and the Canadians and, and we were deep in Iraq at that point. And so they thought, okay, the neighborhood's coming back to us, let's manage it the way we have traditionally managed it. And then, as we started to become more ambivalent about whether we wanted to go big in Afghanistan, we did another thing, which was we made this you know, Indian nuclear deal um, around the same period where we essentially forgave India for breaking out of the nuclear nonproliferation system and offered them you know, significant civilian nuclear aid, also legitimacy, and we told the Pakistanis, you're not getting this deal because you're not reliable enough because of your record of nuclear smuggling, which is a 
authentic record of nuclear smuggling. And uh, you know, then you can imagine the core commanders saying to themselves, well, you know, you've made yourselves clear. India is your strategic partner for the 21st century. We're, you know, we're a transactional partner. Um, we're not really clear what you're doing in Afghanistan. You seem to be leaving, so let's get, let's get back to our, our programs. Gentleman over here. Would you like to group the questions? Your Wonderful show. presentation, Mr. Co uh, Stephen Shore. Mr. Cole, do you feel, uh, you've, uh, you've not explicitly said that you favor the U.S. withdrawal of all its combat troops. Uh, do you uh, favor that? And if so, should there be a deadline? And um, would it, if there, we try to keep it secret, is keeping the deadline secret really possible? You know, I, I finished this project um, frustrated with uh, the effort that our government made to keep the promises it made to all the Afghans that we promised we would support. And I don't favor just pulling out and going home unilaterally. I think that would be not in our interests, not in the interests of Afghans, and not in the interests of anybody in the region. I wish we would find a path out that represented our best efforts to combine military intelligence, diplomatic, and negotiating strategy, because we've never actually brought the best game we've got to this problem. We have run this war in stovepipes. We have, we have changed our minds about our goals. We have muddled the question of war aims. We've confused our allies, our friends. We've confused our adversaries. And so before we just pack up and, and leave Afghans to another civil war of even deeper misery than the one they're enduring now, you know, if you go to Afghanistan today and you encounter this generation in the cities, young people, it's a very young population like a lot of countries of this character. They've grown up post-2001 under American protection, essentially. And, you know, Afghanistan has never seen a generation like this before. There just literally has not been a generation of Afghans like this before that is uh, connected to the world, on phones, on Facebook, um, and in, a, in an environment of, you know, relative coherence. One thing that Pakistan role in the war has done, I think you said it well, or someone said it well, that there's both, um, uh, I don't know which is centripetal and which is centrifugal, but they're both unifying and fragmenting forces in the Afghan body politic, but Pakistan has really helped uh, strengthen Afghan nationalism, and, and there is a sense of, of, uh, of the future in these generations that have stayed and put up with all of the suicide bombings and truck bombings and the losses associated with them that I think is important to the whole region and, and really just shouldn't be abandoned. So uh, I, I just wish we could do better. And, and maybe, the, maybe you know, the Cato kind of sense of American limits um, and philosophy is, is the correct way to think about it. Maybe we just can't. <laughs> you know, maybe that's, that's the reality. I, I wouldn't have felt so skeptical about our ability to um, uh, achieve not a wonderful outcome, but just something better than what we did uh, if I hadn't done this, this research. I, I mean, I'm a creature of Washington. I've been around Washington for a long time. I've covered a lot of bureaucracies, national security bureaucracy. But I found the failure of 
our government, particularly after we sent tens of thousands of young men and women to that war in 2009, to provide a unified best effort to clear thinking, uh, to get a result, uh, very dispiriting. Can we go back there? Uh, David Ralsman, unaffiliated. Could you say, Mr. Cole, in 10 words, what is our national interest? Forget history, forget decisions that we've made, forget at this point in time, what is in our U.S. national interest? Primarily counterterrorism. There are 25 internationally active, you know, terrorist groups in Afghanistan. Um, preventing them from carrying out attacks on the New York subway system, or, um, for that matter, you know, in in against our allies, um, is the primary national interest. I think the stability of Af of Pakistan remains a national interest <laughs> of the United States because it has 100 plus nuclear weapons. Um, so yeah, it's not the same counterterrorism problem as it was in 2009. In some ways, it's worse because in Pac in, as Pakistan has forged its own stability, it's pushed a lot of the problem back into Afghanistan, um, and so that's why you have this Islamic State branch, you know, in eastern Afghanistan. Now it's not connected to Syria. It's not the kind of people who are going to be walking the streets of Paris um, tomorrow. But it's not something you can wish away. It's there. Joe Reeder, Washington attorney. Um, Steve, superbly thoughtful book. Uh, amazing discussion of the, the fratricide issue, the green on blue. Um, sorely tempted to ask you, although you laid out whether yes or no, the Pakistan leadership knew uh, that Osama bin Laden was in Abbottabad. You laid out why, very plausibly, they wouldn't know. and the many years we spent looking for the Unabomber out of Atlanta, Georgia tells me that's plausible. I wonder if you had a, if you had to guess whether they knew or not. They, I mean institutionally. But my, my question is much more important to me is uh, we've heard recently announced uh, President uh, Ghani's uh, engagement of Taliban. My question is what do you think about that and what do you think we as a country ought to be doing about that. If you were called, Professor Call were called by the president to lay out what, how we should react to that, what we should be doing. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, well, I think it's a positive development, this initiative. I mean, it has to, it has to, um, it has to be pursued um, in a way that keeps the majority of Afghans uh, supportive of the goal of, of trying to find political alternatives to war. I, I fear that President Ghani doesn't have the political base to see something like that through. You know, I do think that there's a chapter in the book called Fight and Talk. And as a student of, uh, and that was US policy for a while. They were talking to the Taliban. They were also fighting the Taliban. And they would go into Pakistan and tell 
the somewhat confused army leadership of Pakistan, I know you don't think it makes sense, but it's our policy. We fight and talk. And, um, you know, there is something in that framing, though, that's worth reflecting on, at least in my experience of covering a lot of small wars, a lot of civil wars, and covering them as they end. You know, I was in Britain when the, when the Good Friday Agreement was reached. I've covered a bunch of different conflicts. And, you know, the purpose of negotiating and talking to the adversary is not only to try to find a grand bargain that you can wrap up with a bow and, and call it a day. It's to learn, discover their mindset, their intentions, their, their weaknesses, their vulnerabilities, their thinking about the world. It's to accomplish mutually agreeable reductions in violence that have the indirect effect of stabilizing the war and allowing space for other kinds of solutions to develop. I mean, I was just reading two histories of the Lebanese Civil War, and I was struck by how for significant years of that conflict, two parties that would never reconcile to one another, never, Hezbollah and the State of Israel, nonetheless negotiated these so-called rules of the road agreements in which they agreed not to target each other's civilians. And so basically a whole generation of Israelis living in northern Israel came of age without, under the shadow of Hezbollah artillery range, but, but not targeted, and a whole generation of has, uh, Shias in southern Lebanon uh, grew up similarly, went to school, got married. And, you know, that form of the war, changing it from total destruction to a kind of deterrence, mutual deterrence, standoff between two armies, it actually changed Lebanon. It changed the course of Lebanon's politics, all indirectly in ways that people wouldn't have predicted. But if you're not talking, you don't figure out what you're willing to do to try to change the course of the war indirectly through negotiations. So... I do think it's a positive development. I don't think we should be naive about how quickly or easily it would come together. And I think the kind of framing that President Ghani has laid out very boldly, constitutional amendments and you know, all kinds of carrots, it has to be accompanied by other dimensions of engagement uh, besides just dropping bombs and hoping that they'll show up at the, at the table. There's got to be a lot of other... If you look at the history of the secret negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement with the IRA, I mean, that went on for 15, 16 years, mostly in intelligence channels, before they got to the point where they were ready to flip. And then things can happen very fast if you have a basis for confidence. Could I yeah, add just two points? Um, I think the timing of the Ghani proposal is very good because the Taliban are, are probably at their weakest in terms of the unity of command. The Taliban are really divided. Mm -hmm. And this is a great opportunity. Uh, we were talking of peeling away bits of the Taliban, the local commanders. This is a great opportunity to actually work with groups within the country. Because most of the Taliban that are fighting within Afghanistan are not necessarily based in Quetta or across the border in Pakistan. Most of them are inside the country and they're doing it for their local purposes to protect themselves, so that, that's useful. But going back to something Steve said, I think we need to be humble and modest in our aims, and uh, we shouldn't expect that this is going to change things and it'll change it dramatically, particularly since everybody in the region knows that there's an election coming in Afghanistan. Right. And uh, President Ghani is going to fight with his own, members of his own national unity government. And they're not going to give him something on a platter. So this is going to really complicate the relationship between the, the central government and the Taliban. The other point, just to 
to close the, the loop, I opened by referring to this great book on the Afghan war. It's called for War from the Ground Up, and it's by a young Gurkha rifles captain named Emil Simpson, who has been hailed by Sir Michael Howard as being uh, as having produced a real coda to Clausewitz. So he's comparing this young guy who served four terms in Afghanistan, um, and who belongs to the same regiment as, as Bill Slim, whom the US uh, generals have been reading and rereading. Uh, and one of the things that he talks about is the fact that you don't win the battle in the field. It's now not the battlefield, but the battle space. And the battle space is political and economic and social and everything. And till you have a very clear vision of how you're going to have this really wide battle space that you're going to fight in, and who's going to be your ally and who's going to be your enemy, you really cannot win that battle. In the end, it's political and economic much more than military might. But the military mind tends to think only in terms of kinetic effort. And so the big problem that we are going to face uh, in this country is that you don't have people on the political side, particularly in the leadership, thinking through that issue. You don't have uh, a Secretary Schultz, or you don't have people of that intellect who can help shape the thinking of the White House. Um, you're going to have the military minds saying, a few more troops and we, we're, we're back to, to, be, to winning the war. And they, they use the word winning and they use the word victory. I think that's a mistake. Hello. Uh, Joe Loria, I'm correspondent with the Johannesburg Star. Regarding U.S. aims and goals, uh, a couple of years ago, articles appeared showing the enormous mineral wealth that Afghanistan has. And I was wondering, that inevitably raised questions whether the U.S. had long-term economic or business interests in Afghanistan. And if it's only counterinsurgency, as you say, is the motive, wouldn't the continued presence of the U.S. there lead possibly to revenge attacks against the U.S. in the United States or in, or in Europe? Well, um, I think during the peak of the kind of counterinsurgency war, there was a lot of explicit talk by American commanders about Afghanistan's mineral wealth, trying to um, you know, persuade um, Afghans that they had a potential to sell, and Congress that there was the potential for Afghanistan to eventually self-finance this uh, this war and this budget, um, and of course there was a lot of maneuvering around negotiating for this contract and that contract. The Chinese bought a copper um, mine, I think, south of Kabul, is it? Uh, and but and then there was talk about how the Chinese were ultimately just going to free ride on our security operations and then after we were gone come in and pull everything out of the ground i mean the reality has been that afghanistan is so unstable that you can't get anything out of the ground <laughs> and ship it anywhere and make any money off of it and that's probably going to be the case for an indefinite time i mean you know even baluchistan <coughs> which is nowhere near as uh, fractious as afghan and violent as afghanistan is today has never been able to realize the full potential of its mineral wealth because of politics. And I would imagine that if I were um, you know, an investor, I'm not sure I would uh, put a lot of uh, money in, in that bet. In the long run, if Afghanistan can 
uh, develop a constitutional stability similar to that which it enjoyed for most of the 20th century before it was invaded by the Soviet Union, um, it does have the potential to um, uh, manage some of the benefits, although they're often treacherous. Mineral wealth is usually comes with a curse. Um, but in any event, um, uh, there was a second part of your question beyond the minerals about I'm sure there are people, I mean, I'm sure there were people who thought that this could cement the U.S.-Afghan economic relationship and that they would encourage, um, you know, Afghans to favor U.S. I mean, it's, there's a sort of nationalist economic rhetoric that this administration has about, well, we're the ones who fought the war, therefore you should just give us the mines. I mean, in the earlier administration, it would have been more like, we can build a partnership and we'll have bid contracts and our, our folks will compete and you'll make sure they win some of these and that sort of thing, so... I mean, General Petraeus talked about Afghanistan's mineral wealth explicitly as part of his vision of the battle space. That was probably the most explicit example. But the, the, as a practical matter, there was too much fighting and not enough stability for anyone to make money, including the Chinese. And they, the Chinese, I think, would go down and look at that copper mine that they had paid for. I don't know how much cash they put down, but they certainly contracted for it. And they just, I think eventually, they just kind of rubbed their heads and said, we, why don't we come back in 30 years and see if we can see if we can make this work? Yeah, clearly the U.S. I mean, U.S. military and foreign policy has led to radicalizations in lots of theaters, and there are examples in the book of, of um, you know, about the story of the what was potentially the next greatest Al Qaeda attack after 9/11, which was the conspiracy to blow up airplanes flying over the Atlantic in 2006 on the fifth anniversary or around the fifth anniversary of 9/11, and the book recounts the radicalization stories of the. Uh, Pakistani British young men who participated in that conspiracy, which was broken up before it could get, um, you know, very close, but it was still quite a dangerous and alarming um, plan. Um, and there have been a, one or two other cases linked to um, Afghans who have been radicalized. Uh, one uh, case involving an attempted attack on the New York subway system. Um, and I don't know how, how to read the Orlando shooter's motivations, but you know it's a it's a world of people being radicalized um, uh, through contact with ideas and provocations, and the other side uh, uses the story of U.S. Um, you know military action around the world as core to their narrative about why the U.S. should be attacked. Occasionally, it resonates. Thank you, Mr. Sieb. I have uh, read your first book and the second. Both of them are wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, no need to say that. Uh, I have been in the first decade of war in, in Pakistan from 1980 till 1991. Uh, uh, the talks about Pakistan's behavior to, toward Afghanistan are, as you said, that uh, conduct of Pakistan toward Afghanistan. 
it has been discussed many times, all the Afghans are discussing it. Uh, what is the ultimate goals or national interests of Pakistan and Afghanistan? Uh, many Afghans believe that it's not only establishing Islamic Amarat as the Taliban think they will help them. And uh, how can Pakistan conduct be changed? Because if that is not changed, the current uh, peace process, which President Ghani proposes, uh, will not go anywhere. Thank you. Well, it's the, it's the fundamental question, and I'm sure Shuja will have something to say about it as well. Um, I think there are, you know, Pakistan's core national interests, as they are presented in the problem of Afghanistan, I would say uh, start with domestic security and then move quickly to the problem of India. And um, the, the hypothesis about Afghanistan is that if Pakistan does not seek political influence through um, allied groups like the Taliban or to include Pashtuns um, who may be empathetic to the Taliban but not active in the country's politics, then it will leave the country to Indian influence, to become an Indian ally at Pakistan's expense. And of course, Pakistan sees India behind every rock in Afghanistan. And that's, you know, I used to joke that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean India is not out to get you. And there are some proxy war developments, especially in the last few years, where you know, both sides are trying to use the same proxy violence strategies against one another. It only reinforces the belief among the Pakistani high command that they need purchase on their border region as a kind of forward defense against uh, what they perceive to be long-term Indian intentions. Now, you know, a question, uh, I had an exchange with someone very involved uh, recently, and they said, so, if you ask about Pakistani intentions, would they rather have a certain level of violence in Afghanistan if it would keep India bottled up in the north with its northern, uh, natural northern allies in Afghanistan? Or would they actually settle for a truly peaceful, totally peaceful Afghanistan that might leave Afghanistan independent in choosing where to go with its foreign policy, including with India? And I think that's a question that, the, that you know, the Pakistani high command hasn't been forced to answer, but, you know, you might cynically say that the former is, has, is really the story of their historical policy, that they're willing to accept a certain amount of instability and violence in Afghanistan if they think it will prevent in Afghanistan from consolidating as an ally of India. Well, it's really a story of the last 10 years where, from the Pakistani perspective, um, not inaccurately, their view, this is the way they would tell the story, in, in, certainly in the army. After 9-11, we warned you not to attack Afghanistan. We warned you to use the Taliban to expel al-Qaeda without destroying them. You ignored our advice. You went hurtling into the country. You forced us to change sides. You forced us to abandon the Taliban, even though we advised you it was unwise. And we did. And we gave you everything you asked for, bases, air, air corridors. You fought a war we advised you against. And as a result of the end of that war, hundreds of al-Qaeda radicals came fleeing over from Afghanistan into our country where they settled into cities and into uh, areas. And then they started lashing up with our own militants. And by 2007, 
we were facing the worst domestic insurgency we've ever known. Thank you very much. Now, we would say, uh, you might have some responsibility for this since you nurtured these domestic groups and, and these ideas for so long, but in any event, it's true that Pakistan paid a huge price for the knock-on effects of the American war in Afghanistan. And so if you look at the numbers, the, the tens of thousands of Pakistanis who died 2008 to 2011, 2012, tens of thousands, civilians, militants, security forces, and it really has only been until 2000, uh, you know, by 2015, 2016, that the army and the security forces, you know, have really been able to regain a measure of, of control over Karachi and other uh, parts of the country and, and North Waziristan as well. And one of the ways they've done that is to kind of push as much of the problem in back into Afghanistan, which from their perspective is where it came from, you know, push as much of it back there um, as possible. And it's still not a stable country. I think there were, you know, 22 suicide bombings in Pakistan in the last, you know, year or six months, and 500 Pakistani civilians died last year in terrorist attacks. But compared to what it was in 2009, I mean, it's, they, they really have regained their stability. So hold, the point is, to answer your question, holding on to that achievement um, is an imperative. Now, what does it imply for Pakistan policy in Afghanistan? It certainly doesn't favor the total collapse of Afghanistan into another violent civil war, you know, 1990s on steroids, because there is no way they can prevent that violence from coming back over the border, having achieved it. What they really would want is having pushed this forward to find political and other solutions to stabilize the frontier beyond the Duran line and just make it less of a threat to Pakistani stability. And if they could also prevent India from building kind of clandestine, their imagined clandestine bases along the border, that would be bonus points. So I think that's, that's always roughly been the end state vision. You know, not the return of the Islamic Emirate, but some kind of forward political uh, stability that will allow Pakistan to consolidate at home and find its own economic growth, its own place in the world. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine a day when there are negotiations around these really, as someone I was talking to put, called it, these neuralgic issues for Pakistan, really inflammatory issues like Balochistan, you know. So let's, when you get to the negotiations, you can bring their concern about India into the MOUs that are negotiated with, between Afghanistan and Pakistan and with the international community support. You can, you can, find ways to be honest about what's going on here. The problem now is partly that Pakistan, you know, won't admit that there's, that there are any Taliban in, in Pakistan, or that there's any sanctuary. You're, you're not even having an adult conversation. So then how, if you're not having an adult conversation, how can you get to the, something as hard as Balochistan, you know? I mean, so um, it's a long journey, but I think the effort that the Trump administration is making to at least uh, change gears and put some pressure on Pakistan and the international system over its denial of its 
support for these groups. You know, as long as that is connected to negotiations and as long as it's realistic as to what is being asked of Pakistan, you know, um, either push the Taliban into talks or, or detain their leaders. Okay, that's, that's a concrete uh, request. Um, sometimes, you know, even on the receiving end of pressure, I think the Pakistani leadership has said, well, what do you really want? I mean, you know, can you be specific? Uh, and then they'll get five different delegations from Washington, one from CENTCOM, one from the CIA, one from the State Department, you know, one from the Department of Agriculture, and they'll all have, you know, these lists that, that don't feel like something that they can trust, that if they act on this, they're going to get out of jail, you know? Um, so it's hard, but I think that's the path forward. And there are times in South Asian history where that kind of a negotiation, say between India and Pakistan over the line of control, has reduced, uh, the, has changed Pakistan's conduct to the point where there were like zero crossings happening across the line of control for a few years because of an understanding of that type. So, I think we have um, time for just one more question. We'll go on that side. Uh, Robert Shara, I'm re retired from the IMF some years ago. Uh, there's a concept in economics of absorptive capacity. In other words, a country's ability to absorb aid flows and investment given <coughs> their own level of administrative, administrative, managerial, and physical capacity. In other words, they don't have the people or the roads to absorb it. Um, in, and if you exceed the absorptive capacity, it's certainly going to lead to large amounts of waste, mismanagement, fraud, and corruption. Clearly in uh, Afghanistan as well as Iraq, the US went way, way over anything that could be considered sensible in terms of the amount of money they could put in each year to health, education, and the like. Did these concepts ever arise in the policy discussions? I mean, people in the US who are making these decisions must have known that it would lead to massive waste and corruption. Was this discussed and ignored or, or what? Well, there's a... Um there's a scene in the Situation Room, I think it's in September 2010 in the book, where the cabinet has finally come to terms with this problem as an, as an agenda item, the problem of corruption. But they're completely flummoxed as to what to do about it, since many of the allegations involve the family of the president, others involve you know, critical members of the cabinet, the national security cabinet. At this point, we've hit the peak of our excess above absorptive capacity. I think we were like, you know, $100 billion top line a year um, in a country that might have had a natural GDP of $5 billion. And, um, and so the State Department is commissioned to write a paper about what corruption policy should be given where we are. And they come in with this taxonomy that describes all the different kinds of corruption that there are. There's like functional corruption, so you need a passport, so you have to pay someone outside of channels to get the passport. And then there's sort of systemic corruption. For example, you have to pay to get a job as a police chief in a province, a market rate that is based on how much of a profit you'll earn by taking bribes once you've paid someone else to get the job in the first place. <laughs> and then there's like high-level corruption, which is you know, the Kabul Bank and, and other, uh, you know, heists that was 900 million or so of uh, depositor money that disappeared 
and they had this meeting and they, they just really got stuck. It was sort of like the narcotics problem. Like once you really try to lay out the problem, it just looks um, unsolvable. And I think it's Gates who says, you know, the problem is structure. The problem is, he doesn't use the economics term, but the problem is that we're creating all of this with our contracting. And everyone was sort of shocked that, you know, the Secretary of Defense would admit something like this. And they're like, well, we can't, I mean, let's not, let's not go out and have a press conference about that. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's a critique of us. That shouldn't be our critique of ourselves. But it was a little bit of truth-telling. Um, in the end, they decided that they had to accept the functional corruption as just the ecosystem, that they really didn't know what to do about the systemic, and that the high level they would prosecute if it was if it touched on U.S. Justice Department jurisdiction. So if you made the mistake of moving money to a New York bank uh, and they got wind of it, they would, they would prosecute. But if it didn't touch the U.S. system, they would just refer it to Hamid Karzai for prosecution in the Afghan system, and then they all knew what that meant. Can I add a footnote to that, Steve? Um, I was in a discussion at the White House, um, and I asked if the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, who had been given the regional portfolio, had been included in meetings on some of these issues. And the moment I asked the question, people started taking notes. And then the senior person in the room said, oh, we must make sure we invite uh, Neil Wolin to these meetings. <laughs> um, so Treasury was not uh, involved in the decision making. Uh, this 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 phenomenon, I, I guess, Robert, we, it's kind of a similar to the Dutch disease, that suddenly you throw so much money into the into the economy that uh, they don't know what to do with it, and a lot of the money, as you know from your own reporting, was being transported in pallets, hard currency from Kabul to Dubai. It would have been easier to just send the wire transfer to the accounts <laughs> in Dubai. Um, well, on that note, I wanted to thank you for your comments um, and for writing such an excellent book. Um, our session is over for now, but we do have lunch um, upstairs. And of course, um, Steve will be there to answer any of your questions. Thank you for coming on such a rainy day. Thank you for our online viewers. Um, and thank you for listening. <laughs>